Good evening. Glad to see you all. Go ahead and start turning James the fourth chapter. We're going to talk about some things out of that very practical little epistle. James the fourth chapter. We're engaging in some things here for the next couple of days. And we started yesterday with some things that we're planning on making us better. We're talking about practical Christianity. Using the book of James as a launching point for several things that will help us go from where we found each other on Sunday morning to some other place that God has designed for us to be after all of this is over. Now I'm going to go ahead and say some of this stuff that we're going to talk about, you just can't get it all figured out in one sitting. You're going to find that you can go back into the book of James after the things that we've studied and some of those things will be rich with meaning for you deeper and deeper and deeper and further and further. As you grow, this is the amazing thing about God's Word. As you grow, your ability to understand things that you already knew in a better way, in a new way, in a powerful way. And so the whole idea of us studying these things together, this won't be the last time that you'll study the book of James. It may not even be the most profitable time that you'll study the book of James, but the things we're going to talk about tonight, I'm hoping, will help us. We had just a terrific dinner with Kyle Squared and with Judith and Holly and all those beautiful kids. We've really enjoyed it. I'm really glad that my wife Amy was able to come because she needed to hear this lesson real bad because we're going to talk about conflict. Boy, oh boy, oh boy. What is it that makes life hard when husbands and wives don't get along? When kids and parents don't get along? When bosses and employees don't get along? When senators don't get along with each other and they don't get along with the president? When the president doesn't get along with his cabinet? When the president doesn't get along with anybody? All of that stuff creates conflict and difficulty when the team doesn't like the coach. When the, the neighborhood doesn't like the new neighbor, conflict causes stress. And I'm going to tell you something. I'm believing more and more all the time that when Jesus says, Come to me, all you labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. He meant that his way would be less stressful than the other ways. The other things that people do, that's harder. And it's going to be fraught with all kinds of difficulty that maybe we don't even fully understand when we start getting into it. James is going to tell us a few things about conflict that we need to know. And we're going to begin right here in chapter 4 and verse 1. And the first thing we're going to talk about are the three big desires that cause conflict. Number one, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust, do not have. You murder and covet, cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. 
Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Right away, we get the idea that James is saying all the conflict that exists in your life, all the trouble that you've ever had with people comes from a misconception that you are the center of the universe. Uh, we, we did this thing with our daughter once upon a time. She was talking about things and she didn't like the way things were going and she was upset and she was complaining and griping about things. And uh, we were just talking and I said, Listen, do you know what I read today? And she said, and she thought that was pretty shocking. It was just out of the nowhere. And, and, and she said, No what? I said, Scientists have now discovered, they're pretty confident. Now they've got that new telescope up there and all of these different images they're getting from everywhere and all the radio telescopy that they're doing. It's just this amazing thing. Scientists have now discovered where the center of the universe, the existing universe is. She goes, really? I said, yes. And you know what? And she said, no, what? I said, it's not you. And she said, dad. I mean, so... I don't know that it helped her at all, but there's a moment in time for every one of us to realize whatever conflict is going on, wherever I'm butting heads with somebody, it's because I have mistaken myself for God. I think I'm the one that everybody's supposed to be pleasing. I think I'm supposed to have what I want. And I think I'm the one who gets to make the rules. And sometimes it's because we do attain certain degrees of nominal power in whatever situations we find ourselves in. And we start forgetting that we aren't God. So he says right here at the beginning, the reasons we have conflict is because you want to have, you desire, you want these things. Verse 2, he's talking about that. There are things that you want to have, materialism and possessions. I used to love watching this show called Behind the Music. Uh, it was something that VH1 put on, and I loved it because it was the same story all the time. It didn't matter if you were in hip-hop or rock and roll or country or anything else. What was going on behind the scenes is you went from rags to riches back to rags. They had everything that the American dream had to offer, and they lost it all because once they had it, they realized it didn't make them happy, and they wasted their lives on those things, and now you see them... As security guards or they're tending bars someplace or they're just making music in their garage and that's, that's enough for them. They're satisfied now. Well, why do we have to keep doing that story over and over again to find out? Stuff doesn't matter. And I'm going to tell you, I like stuff. I'm talking to you as a person who enjoys stuff. I am so excited when my wife brings home a new toothbrush. That's how much I like stuff. I like opening a new thing and using it for the first time. I like a new pack of post-it notes. I also like a new car. Don't get me wrong. I don't just like little new things. I like new stuff. And I know that those things are going to bring some modicum of instant happiness that's going to fade as it deteriorates, as I lose interest, as time goes on. As I find a new thing to like, as I find another thing that I'm going to want. And if you let that go on, you find yourself in an endless cycle of loss and unhappiness. And what happens is you end up in conflict with people you love. You end, in, end up in conflict with people in the church. You end up in conflict with the people in your family. 
And you end up in conflict with God because he says you cannot serve God and man. And it's not possible. Jesus doesn't say it's really hard. He says you can't because you will have one be your master. And here's where we get twisted. This is where things get really mixed up. When God made stuff, he said, that's the stuff you're supposed to use. When he made people, he said, these are the things you're supposed to love. And we've got them reversed. In our culture, people are the things we use and stuff is the stuff we love. And as soon as that switch happens, our thoughts are broken and they're irretrievably broken until we switch that paradigm back where it belongs. People are what you love. Stuff is what you use. As soon as that's restored, you begin to understand and you stop wanting to have so much. And you learn what contentment is about. We also have the problem that we desire to feel. We love to have the feels. We enjoy pleasure. We enjoy uh, the ideas that come to us from comfort. There is a whole company, you know, that's devoted to your comfort. And they call themselves the Lazy Boy Corporation. Isn't that interesting? The best-selling chair in the United States is called the Lazy Boy. You notice it's not called the Lazy Girl, don't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We all know why. But we want to feel. What do we want to feel? I only want to feel good things. I don't want to feel pain. I don't want to feel discomfort. I don't want to feel awkwardness. I don't want to feel that sort of sense of dread. I don't want to feel anything but good. And so I'm focused on sensual experiences. I don't want to have any pain, so I avoid conflict where I think I can't win. I, I, I don't want to have discomfort, so I avoid things that are out of my zone where I'm not used to things. And I won't push myself because I don't believe I'm supposed to be uncomfortable. And all of this leads us to the conclusion that I'm supposed to enjoy life. Please don't get me wrong. I think God wants us to enjoy life. I think that's the reason he says eternal life is the ultimate motivation. If life was not supposed to be enjoyable, why would you want it for eternity? So I, yes, I do believe it's supposed to be enjoyable. But you know what? We have words in our language for enjoy too much. Did you know that? When someone enjoys their power too much, you know what we call them? A megalomaniac. That's someone who's power crazy. When someone um, enjoys other people carnally too much, we call that lust. When a person enjoys themselves too much, we call that selfishness. Why do we have those words? Well, it's because God has words for that too. He says it's the lust of the flesh. It's the lust of the eyes. It's the pride of life. There in 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17. And those are the words he uses. He says, you can love the earth too much. You can love humans too much. You can love pleasure too much. You can love feeling too much. And in a world now where people can simply tell you, even though they were born as a man or born as a woman, they feel like a, a, the opposite. So they are that. Because feelings are the thing that make those determinations. And I'm going to tell you something we're going to think that was really ridiculous. And, and history is going to judge us as a group of really dumb people because we let that kind of thing go on. Feelings are irrelevant. I tell, I tell young people all the time when they start talking about how they feel about things, I say, let me tell you what feelings are. God gave us feelings and He meant for feelings to enhance our experience, 
God wants us to have good feelings. And God wants those feelings to accentuate what's going on. Feelings are the condiments of life. I like some ketchup. I like a little salt. I like some mustard on some things, like a little sauce of heat. I like all kinds of sorts of sodium-filled, sugary sort of glazes. I love all that kind of stuff. But nobody's going to sit down and have a bucket full of ketchup for supper. And that's life. That's what life is supposed to be. It's supposed to be seasoned with the feelings. It's not supposed to be all about the feelings. Feelings are the condiments of life. The third thing he's saying here is that we conflict, we end up fighting with other people and with God because we have desire to be. I want to be known. I want to be seen. I want to be appreciated. I want to be popular. I want my way. And never has this been more easily observable than in the era of the selfie. I would shudder to think at what percentage of the cloud is occupied simply with self-taken pictures of people. It has to be an enormous percentage. It has to be. Because everybody who's under the age of 25, I see them constantly doing this. And they're just snapping pictures all the time. Well, what's the message there? The message is, notice me. Like me, love me, appreciate me. I'm feeling cute. I may delete this later. I don't know. Well, what is all of that saying? What are we trying to communicate with people? We're trying to say, you need to love me. You need to affirm me. You need to validate me. You need to pay attention to me. Be impressed by me. Be envious of me. Be intimidated by me. And we don't know when to say uncle. We don't know when to say, I give. You know what? I'm not the best. I'm not the smartest. I'm not the most interesting. I'm not the prettiest. We don't know when to just say that. I'm not. And I'm going to tell you right now, young people, let me, let me tell all of you. The moment you realize there's always somebody prettier than me, smarter than me, richer than me, has better ideas than me, the happier you will become. Because you'll find what your role is in life and you'll know what to do with yourself instead of wishing you were somebody else. This idea right here, you've got to say uncle. Or my brothers used to make me say, I'm a meek and lowly Hoosier. They would we'd do mercy. You know, we play that mercy game when they'd cripple my hands or they'd put my arm behind my back and, or they'd get me down on the ground and they'd threaten to spit in my mouth and stuff like that because that's what brothers do. And they would make me say, I am a meek and lowly Hoosier before they'd let me go. Now, that, I hope there's nobody here from Indiana who takes great offense at that. That was a big power statement at our house. People, other people said uncle, but that was the thing that we had to say when we were in a compromising position. So as the youngest of five kids who was a crybaby a little bit, I had to learn to say, I'm a meek and lowly Hoosier a lot. I had to say it all the time. And I'm going to say that kind of set me up in some ways to be really much mentally (laughs) healthier when it comes to stuff like this because I know... There are far better preachers than me. There's better looking men that my wife could have than me. There's taller, fitter guys than me. There's guys who know more stuff than I know. I'm happy to know those people. I have zero interest in being those people. God made me unique. I'm the only one like me. And everybody says, thank you, God, for that. I'm the only one like me. I'm the only one equipped like me. And you're the only one equipped like you. 
the idea that we're going to be somehow special because of who we have become, that's an abuse of stewardship. And it's simply silly for us to do that. So James is telling us here, we do not have the things that we desire sometimes because we don't ask. He says you don't ask, and then he also says you also ask amiss. In other words, you've got the wrong motives. Let, let me just talk very briefly about something that I experienced uh, last week. Um, we had a gospel meeting, or the week before last, excuse me, it wasn't last week. It just seemed, it, it was just, it's like a month worth of stuff. It was incredible. He says he begins his day every day asking beautiful questions. And he said, I've learned to stop putting limitations on God and ask big. Now, I also had to learn, of course, to not worry about the result, to not be concerned about how God would do that. But that enabled me to ask for enormous things. And see, what happens is we start reasoning things out. Well, this person's so sick, they're never going to get better. Uh, this is such a problem, I don't know if I'll ever, ever overcome that. I don't know if this is really the thing that I should be doing or not. And, and I'm just kind of, I'm going to kind of make those decisions and that's going to shrink my prayers down to where I do not ask for big things. You say, well, you know, this person's been away from the Lord for 20 years. I just don't think they're ever going to come back. So I'm going to say, well, God, if maybe, perhaps, if you could possibly, maybe there's some teeny tiny little something that I could do and maybe it would be helpful to this person or maybe not. And we stop praying altogether about those things. We know there's somebody that can't have a baby. And we say, well, the doctor says, well, they can't have a baby. And so we're like, well, the doctor said they couldn't. So... God, if you were still doing miracles, I'd ask for a baby, but since you're not, I'm going to say, you know, help them find peace with that uh, diagnosis. Ask for whatever you think is possible if you were God. What is too hard for God? Do we have any? Let me just ask the audience tonight. What's too hard for him? What's out of God's reach? Let me tell you, there's a few guys in this room I would pick a fight with. Number one's right here. I think he'd whip me pretty quick. But you know how big he is to God? Kind of puny. No, no offense, brother. He's kind of puny compared to God. This is the perspective of David as he runs toward the giant named Goliath. He is not fighting as David. He's fighting as the messenger of God who he has offended. And he knows God's going to take care of this giant. He knows David can't do that. Well, that's the way we pray. I know God can do things I cannot do. That's why I'm praying. I can't do this. And so why do we crush down and sort of recycle our prayers in these little wadded up pieces of aluminum foil from the leftovers and ask God for junk like that? When we're talking to the one who created the earth by saying, let it be. Who said, let there be light and there was light. There was the big bang, by the way. We do not ask. And you know why we don't ask? Not only are we busy trying to have these things, we don't ask because we think we're God. And if I was God, I couldn't do that, so I'm not going to ask for that. And then secondly, he says, you ask amiss so you can spend it on your own desires. In other words, our motivations are impure. We have ideas about what we're going to do with what God does for us that's selfish. 
that's with an eye on what I can do and what it's going to do for me and how that will mean something to me or for me or what that makes me look like. All of those things. And so what he says down here in these uh, verses about that, verse 5 or 6, he says, what happens is that you're now in conflict with God. And when he starts loading up and starts using phrases like adulterers and adulteresses, you know that you're in trouble. Did you see that business about enmity with God? If you make yourself an enemy of God, what do you think that means? And this is the way all of us laid-back Kentucky folks read that. You make yourself kind of like, a, kind of like an enemy of God. You're kind of like an enemy of God. Is that what James said? Does James say it's bad for you and it's... I wouldn't do it. He says... You make yourself an enemy of God. Let me rattle off a few of the enemies of God. Egypt, circa 1400 in that neighborhood. Do you know what he did to Egypt because they were his enemy? Because they blasphemed him and they'd held his people against their will? He decimated them. And I mean that literally, ten decimated them with plagues. Have you ever met an Assyrian? You have not. And do you know why? Because there are none. Do you know why? Because they were the enemies of God. Did Korah have any descendants? No. Because he made himself an enemy of God. We could just go down this list if you want. But you don't want to be an enemy of God. I don't want above anything else. While we're on the subject, let's get this straight. Of all the conflict available in the universe, the one conflict I must never maintain is enmity with God. What a horrifying prospect that would be. So, what you have to do is humble yourself and quit playing God. Humble yourself in the eyes of the Lord. Lower yourself. Literally humiliate yourself. Have you ever been humiliated? We almost always use that phrase in the most negative way possible. Humiliating somebody is like the worst thing you can do to them. We'd rather someone just straight out insult us. We'd rather them embarrass us in other ways. But humiliation. And what the, what the book of James is telling us is here is do that yourself. Do that to yourself. Remove all of your pride from this equation. You know why? Because you're not comparing yourself to me. If you compared yourself to me, you'd win in the columns. I mean, we just have all kinds of the pros and cons. You're like, well, who's better, me or Phil? And you could do that all day, and, and every day I'd, be, I'd lose. And there's probably some people in this room you could compare yourself, especially if you get to control what you compare. I will tell you this. If we're just going to compare hair in this room, I got it i got hair for days. But that may be where the end list ends. Well, how about we don't be of those who compare themselves to themselves and instead compare ourselves to God? That is what it means to humiliate yourself, is to say, well, maybe I'm special in some ways or to some people, but what about compared to God? The solution for all of this 
is to understand how great the need is. The humility is the answer to all conflict. The book of Proverbs goes on about this ad nauseum. Where there is no wood, the fire goes out. If you'll just stop fighting, you know, it takes two to tango. That's not in the Proverbs. I'm just saying that's one of ours. You, you're just going to have the end of conflict. If you'll just stop fighting, there's, the fight is over. Because one person cannot fight by themselves. If they can, they probably need larger mental help than you can provide. It needs to be a professional. So in order to do this, if I'm going to quit being God, I, the first thing I'm going to do is give up and let God be God. I'm going to give in to Him. I'm just going to say, whatever it is that you want. I'm going to let Him control things. I'm going to let Him manage my life. I'm going to let Him tell me what's good and what's bad, what's right and what's wrong. And what I'm going to find is that every time I take God out of the driver's seat, the life that I will have created for myself will be misery of the purest and most unadulterated sort. And that is the moment in time. You know how we talk about people hitting the bottom of the barrel? That sometimes you have to let somebody hit the bottom of the barrel before they recover? Someone who's into drugs and alcohol or someone who's got a pornography or a gambling problem. And you say, sometimes the only thing you can do is watch them fall. You just have to let that happen. Do you know that's true here too? When, <clears throat> when I'm trying to run my life and I've tried to kind of do an end run around God and get away from the rules that He set up and I'm trying to run things myself... When I get to the bottom of that barrel, this is, this, thing, this is the thing I need to tell myself, I need to remind myself about. This is what we got with me driving. Who should be driving this vehicle called my life? Who should be in the driver's seat? Because when I was driving, we had a lot of accidents. We had all kinds of damage done. We have all kinds of mechanical problems now. and we, Now we have issues and speed bumps we're going to have to deal with forever and forever and forever. Second thing you need to do is get wise to the devil. The devil is a coward. I, I, I was watching, um, Amy and I love to watch these nature documentaries, and we watched this one, and Sir Richard, Richard Attenborough made a point in, I think it was Planet Earth, the first one, or maybe the lion and the uh, spy in the pack. Anyway, that is unimportant. He made the point that although most of the hunting is done by the she-lions, the female lions, it's again, that's why we call it the lazy boy, not the lazy girl, while all of that is true, when a male lion gets involved and does do some hunting or does get into conflict, he will only engage, and I don't know how they figured this out, if he has a 90% or greater chance of success. If he's 90% sure he can catch it and kill it, he'll attack it. If he's 90% sure he can beat the other male lion to be the head of the pride, he'll do it. Unless he's that sure... He will not. That is your enemy. He walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Do you know why lions roar? You know that noise they make? Do you know why they do that? It's bluster, folks. You can hear that for five miles on the open savanna. It's so powerful. They call the lion the king of the jungle, even though lions don't ever live in the jungle. They live exclusively on savannas and fields and plains. But that roar can be heard even in the jungle. But when it gets down to it, you on a good day, you on a good day, hold your fist out and say, I'll punch you right in the mouth. And if he's not 90% sure he can take you, he'll run away from you too. A real lion would. He probably won't. Don't try it. 
This is your enemy, the devil. He's already lost. He knows he's lost. He knows the only way he can get you is if he can get you to say you've lost. And so it's all about tricks and deception. It's all about weighing everything in his balance. It's all about negativity. It's all about negative self-speaking and kind of getting your eyes turned away from God and off the real prize. It's about you believing the garbage that he's selling. It's the roar. It's the bluster. It's the noise that he makes. You surely must believe this. And it's the same kind of dumb stuff that he was trying in the Garden of Eden that worked. Did God tell you that you would die the day you ate of that? You shall not surely die. God just doesn't want you being as smart as he is. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Come on. And you start believing it. You start buying it. You start buying the idea that, well, maybe, it could be. Well, I'm not really sure. I I don't know if I can. Just go ahead and tell yourself, I know who the enemy is. It's Satan. You know what that does? When you start getting wise to who he is, you stop seeing other people as the enemy. They are people, as Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy, the second chapter, People who've been taken captive by Him to do His will. They've been taken captive. They've been brainwashed. They're in the same boat that you're in. They're just not wise to who the enemy is. He also says you've got to draw nearer to God. Draw closer to Him. How do, you, how do you go about that? One of the best things we've ever done at Expressway is something we're currently involved in. A lot of churches have done a daily Bible reading. And sometimes we'll, we would print... Uh, our daily Bible reading, and you could take that little thing and you unfold it and mark it off as you go day by day by day. We found that people would start, and lots of people read Genesis through Exodus and drop off Leviticus and pick up again next time we picked up Genesis. Or they'd pick up an Acts, and they'd, they'd read Acts for the 15 billionth time. And they might read all the Gospels, and they might get to Acts, but then they kind of fall off in the epistles. So we found that that would happen. So what we started doing was... Instead of just having a reading program out there, we, we got a reading program together and we got an app that was available to, for free to school systems called Remind. And we would program that in so that you could sign up to get that daily reminder of what the reading is and you'd be reminded not only were, was that the reading that day, but whoever else was involved was reading it with you. We got up to about 83 people last year doing that through the whole Old Testament. We had people adding all the way into December. That was really cool. We started with just the New Testament at the beginning of this year. There are about 152 people who have signed up for that. And every day they're reading. And I've heard more people come up and, and tell me, I'm doing it because I'm doing it with other people. And for some reason this is working. I'm, this is the first time I've ever read all the way through the Bible. How do you get closer to God? Read what he says. Read what part of his mind he's exposed to you. It's the exact same way you get closer to a human. You relate to them through the things they reveal to you about themselves. You simply do not know everything there is to know about any other human being. You don't. I think 1 Corinthians 2 kind of says you can't. Only the man who is is in the spirit of that man can know the things of that man. But whatever someone reveals to you about themselves, you can know that. 
And what has God done? He's revealed part of himself. The significant part that you need to know. So you need to get in that book. You need to read it. You've got to find some way to do it. And someone says, I've tried before and I've failed. Okay, try something different. I've, I've, you know, I've always kind of, okay, try something different. Don't quit. You can never quit. You can never quit. No matter what else you do, you never quit. I would rather die on my feet than live on my knees. I'm not going to surrender to that stinking devil. I'm not going to do it. I want to punch him in the mouth so bad. Don't you? He's done so much damage. And what God says is, I'm right here. He's never been more available than he is right now. I've got two whole copies of the Bible in my hand. I could have dozens. I could have every translation that's ever been written in English right here in a matter of seconds. We don't have any excuse. I'm going to tell you the other advantage of this. When you get closer to God, you know what you're going to find out? It's a lot easier to compare yourself to God when that happens. And the closer you get to God, the more impressed you're going to be with God and the less likely it is you're going to try to take His seat. The last thing you think he's talking about here is is gaining forgiveness. When he starts talking about cleansing your hands and cleansing your heart, don't, don't try to make yourself righteous. Always go to God and ask Him. He already knows everything you've done. He already knows all the mistakes you've made. He knows how you failed. If you will admit that to Him, He can be God to you and actually forgive you. You're holding back on admitting that does not stop it from being true. Just because you don't say it out loud to God doesn't mean that you didn't sin. It's there. He knows it. But when you speak it to Him, He can forgive it. He can get rid of it. And that's why I think He says what He says here about that. It's so important. While you're on that subject real quick, Ask yourself how good you are at asking forgiveness and giving forgiveness from other people. What are the hardest words in the English language to say? I was wrong. I am sorry. Will you forgive me? There's four. Oh, those are tough. And here's where we always start saying, well, the reason I've got a beef with that person or that person's got a beef with the reason we're at odds. Well, she knows what she did. And you say, let me explain the whole story to you, Phil. They are responsible for this. And I I ask, 100%? Like 100% responsible. And people go, what do you mean? I said, so this problem comes up exclusively on their side of things. As soon as it came up, you reacted perfectly. You said all the right things. You took into consideration all of the issues. You knew exactly where they were at. You knew why they were saying that. You had given them the benefit of the doubt and let them go a little ways before you said anything. You gave it space and you prayed about it before you said anything. And then you took your moment and said, I'm going to think about what you said and wait a day before you reacted emotionally. And you did all of those things. I've never heard anybody say yes. Never. Never. So here's the deal. If they were 95% responsible, I would have settled for 95 in anything I ever took in school. 95 is great. That's high. That's a high percentage. If they were 95% responsible, that still leaves you with 5% to work with. And you know what the devil calls that? In Ephesians 4, the devil calls that a foothold. And you know what he makes out of footholds? Fortresses. 
He takes a foothold, turns it into a chair, turns that chair into a shed, turns that shed into a house, turns that shed into a fortress. And before you know it, you've got to take the army of God into that place and tear it down brick by brick and wage war against him. What could you do with a foothold that says, I'm sorry, I wasn't thinking about you when I said that. It was inconsiderate. I wasn't realizing how, how bad off you were at that moment. I made you mad. I didn't mean to do that, but I know that I did. Is there anything you can do? Anything at all? Even if it's the tiniest percentage of that, if any of it belongs to you whatsoever. Well, verses 11 and 12. Let's hit those real quick because there's a couple of really important things there. He says, Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law. Judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? Unfortunately, sometimes those of us who are very familiar with God and very familiar with His Word end up being... What's the word... Snotty. We act a little holier than thou, a little self-righteous, a little self-justified, a little better than, a little look down your nose at people. And the further away from your sin you get to God, the easier that gets to feel that way. And he says, um, you know what? Here in verses 11 and 12, he says, you know what? You're not the judge. You don't have the right to speak evil of a brother. Three times in this one chapter, he uses the term brothers. Is James trying to tell us something about each other, about the church, about our relationships with each other? Brethren, we are a family. We're not like a family. We are a family. And when one of us rises up and seeks preeminence like Diotrephes did, when one of us rises up like that, what we've done is we put ourselves in the place of judge. And there is so much room in the kingdom, folks. There's so much room in the kingdom that people don't have to do things the way you do them in order for those things to be right. Did you know that? I'm going to just blow your mind. I'm going to tell you several things real fast. You're going to just blow your mind. There are Democrats who are going to go to heaven. There are Republicans who are going to go to heaven. Some of the people who raise their kids and send them to public school... They and their kids are going to go to heaven. Some of the people who raise their kids and homeschool them, they're going to go to heaven and their kids are going to go to heaven. Some of the people who private school their kids are going to go to heaven and their kids are going to go to heaven. Can you believe it? There is no one right way to do good things. And the moment we start thinking that we've got the market cornered and that we become judges and whoever is a judge... Not a doer of the law. And what does he say about doing the law? If you forget what you were, you stop looking at yourself. You forget what kind of person you were. You're no longer a doer of the law. You're a judge. And if you're going to be a judge, you better be innocent of all because anybody who's guilty of one is guilty of all. Then we said in chapter 2 yesterday. And he says there is but one judge. One. And if you're going to be the kind of person who speaks evil of your brother, you have gone way off limits. So what we do is we talk about our own sins. We give them new names. 
One of the best things that anybody ever did for the cause of adultery, I mean, this advanced adultery by centuries, is calling an adulterous affair an affair. Instead of calling it a trashy heap of immorality that deserves to be beaten with a horsewhip. That would be a better name for it. If we had to say that every time we talk about someone having an adulterous relationship, we'd probably like it less. We'd probably all find it far less appealing. But we call it a love affair. And instead of saying things like, my lust got the best of me and I had to go to bed with this person because I just couldn't control my body. Like, I'm a monkey. Instead of saying, I didn't mean to fall in love. <laughs> you just can't choose who you love. Love doesn't have anything to do with that. And we, we say that, and I start with the adulterous affair because James hits them pretty hard here right early on. And then none of us think adulterers are cool, right? All of us are very much against that. Is everybody? Yeah, we're all against it. Good, okay. But that's not the only one. I don't ever say, you know, the sin that I'm guilty of is gossip. We don't ever say that. We say, I don't gossip. I merely share my concerns. Uh, I would never admit to being lazy, but I will tell you sometimes I'm pretty mellow. I would never say that I'm a negative person, but I am realistic. I would never admit to being flaky and undependable, but I would call myself flexible. Never use the term wishy-washy or, you know. Uh, I, yeah, see, we do that. We excuse and rationalize ourselves, and that's when we become judges, and that's when we become judges of the law, and that's when we become judges of our brothers and sisters. So how do I stop? Oops, I didn't mean to do that. How do I stop playing God? I need to remember, I'm going to be judged by the same standards that I use. That goes all the way back to Jesus in Matthew 7 and the Sermon on the Mount. Whatever measure you use, it'll be measured back to you. So be very careful what it is you choose to do. Remember that you are also accountable to God. You're not going to be standing next to God in the day of judgment saying, that one's a good one, that one's a bad one. No, that one doesn't come in. Don't even let them, don't let, don't let them open their mouth. They're going to say all kinds of stuff. That's not going to be your role. You're not going to be there. If I could just get you to see the image that's in my head, I don't have the words for it. I feel like I'm going to come stumbling on my hands and knees to the gate. I'm going to barely make it in, and it's only going to be because of the grace of God. And I feel like God's going to give me a job, maybe like I can hold the outside door open where I've got one foot in heaven. That's all I'll ever need. I can let other people in. If, if, if I'm just allowed that close, that'll be enough for me. I have zero interest in being the judge. Do you? Do you really want that responsibility? Do you think you can know everything so perfectly that you know all the circumstances that went into everything? You know all the thoughts and motivations. You knew the heart of the people. You knew the circumstances, their background that led them to that place. You knew what kind of hardship that they faced that put them in that mindset. You knew what had been going on and you knew what their culture was about and how all of that developed. You knew all of that? You don't. We must stop trying to be that judge. Each of us is accountable to God. And then we need to remember... God's been awfully merciful to me. I don't recommend this to people very often, but I'll tell you, if you ever get a little above yourself or a little ahead of yourself, it'd be so productive for you to go back and list the sins that you remember that you've committed. 
it won't do any good to talk to God about those things because you've been forgiven. He's forgotten them. But the only reason he's forgotten them is because of his mercy. And when we go looking for justice instead of mercy, we're looking in the wrong field at the wrong game. That's not God's game. God desires to give mercy. He longs to be gracious. He hopes and waits for many to be saved. And He's depending on us to bring those people to the throne so that they may bow their knee to Jesus. Because that's what we did. He didn't save us because we were already so good. Grace is not for the deserving. I want you to say that phrase quietly to yourself. If you don't feel like you can speak in an assembly, I understand that 100%. I want you, under your breath, grace is not for the deserving. I know I need grace, and I know everybody else does. If we deserved it, we wouldn't need it. That's so dreadfully important. So let's talk about these last few verses, which again are the highlight verses that usually get covered in James 4. What I want you to see about verses 13 through 17 of this chapter is this is the kind of stuff that happens when you play God long enough, you stop making plans with God in mind. Verse 13, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It's even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it to him, it is sin. Humbling yourself to God's will. So very important. When you play God long enough, you stop thinking about God being in control of things like time and space. And you stop thinking about providence. And you stop thinking about Him really altogether. And you start making your plans and deciding what your life is going to consist of and what it's going to weigh at the end of all things and how much you're going to get done and what you're going to get accomplished. Instead, you ought to always say, if God wills. You know, for hundreds of years, believers would write letters to each other in correspondence. And for hundreds of years, all of them would sign DV after their names in a letter. Did you know that? DV. And it's not a, an, an accreditation. It's not some kind of doctorate degree. It's not like a BS or a BA or an, an MA or a doctor of anything. It's Latin for Deo Volante. You know what Deo Volante means? If God wills. In other words, I will be me if God wills. All that I've written in this letter to you, if God wills. My plans and how they might involve you and what we might do together, if God wills. Everything about my life, that's the last thing I'm going to write in that letter, is because that's the way I'm going to live my life. I'm going to prioritize myself according to God. What happens when you end those sentences with, if God wills, you remember to do the thing you should have started with, which was, is this what God wants? I'm going to submit myself entirely to God's will. And if I don't get a chance to do it at the beginning of that thought, I'm going to do it at the end. And at least I'll give myself the benefit of the doubt. Literally, the benefit of the doubt. I'm not so sure this is what God wants me to do. And if it's not what He wants me to do, I've already acknowledged I'm not going to do it. You see how that works? 
It sounds cheesy. I know it kind of sounds campy, like, oh, if God wills. And that ridiculous statement that sometimes we, we say to each other, Lord willing and the creek don't rise. Well, I've said that many times myself. And it wasn't until just about 10 years ago I knew that was a statement about Native Americans. The creek or the creek Indians. It's not the creek if it water rises. It's the creek Indians. If they do not attack us and kill all of us, then we will do that. If the Lord's willing and the creek don't rise. Well, I don't say that anymore. First of all, I don't know any creek Indians. And even if I did, I'm pretty sure they're nice folks. But I can say and should say, if God wills, this is what my life will consist of. If God wills, I'll come to you. If God wills, I'll be here tomorrow night at 7 o'clock. If God wills, we'll talk about James 5. If God wills. And if I'm having trouble thinking about that, I should say it. I'm going to just tell you, if you're having trouble thinking like that, start saying it so it becomes part of your habit, so it becomes part of your life. I can respond to God's will in three ways, really. If I'm going to be the kind of person... So these are really the three kinds of Christians you have. And what I'm going to describe to you is not a sentence. Like you're not saddled with this forevermore. But it is a level of maturity. And if you have not achieved the next one, then it's something to shoot for. I can give reference to God's will. In other words, I'm only occasionally going to reference it kind of like, well, this is what God said. I'm doing this and I'm looking for justification for what I'm doing in God's word. So... I'm already doing this. You know, frankly, I've come across a lot of people who are members of the Church of Christ because of that. Uh, I'm already doing it, and so now I look at the Bible to prove my point. I've opened my Bible to prove that what I'm already doing is what I should be doing. And that's backwards. Bible study works the other way. Bible study, you open up your Bible and you see, what does God want? And then you try to do that. If you find the church you're part of is not doing that, then you may feel free to abandon that and go someplace where they're doing right. But let me caution you about this. In the United States of America, what we have done is completely antithetical to God's will. we got faithful churches all over Lexington, all over Nicholasville, and you could draw a circle around Lexington. You have all kinds of faithful churches. You can do the same thing in Louisville. There's 20 faithful churches in the Louisville area, within driving distance of my home, I could go to any number of those. We've kind of gotten the idea that half of this is true. I study the Bible. I see what the church is supposed to be. I go to church. If the church isn't doing that, then I will find a church that is. And then what we do is we decide that if a church isn't doing exactly what I want, I can abandon that church, even if it's scripturally sound, I can leave that church because I don't like it. Before you ever make that kind of decision, before you ever let anybody in your circle of influence make that decision, ask them to read 1 Corinthians and ask them if their church is as messed up as that church because Paul never told one person to abandon that fellowship. Even though they were the maybe the most dysfunctional church recorded in history. He never told one person to leave. He never told one person to abandon that fellowship. He did tell everybody, try harder to get along and quit being so carnal and put your mind in the right place and remember what Jesus did for you. He did do all of those things. But he didn't say just willy-nilly. This is what happens. When we only give reference to God's word, 
This is the kind of stuff we do. I might give deference to God's word. I may say, you know what? This is what I think, but God says this, so I'm going to change my mind. I can be taught. I'm a learnable person. I can, I can do that. And every once in a while, God's going to disagree with me, and I'm going to have to say, well, I need to think about that. I've got to pray about that. I'm going to have to do something about that. This is better than the first one. But this is where it needs to be. I give preference to God's will. I don't need to pray about it or think about it. If I read what God's will is and it's different than what I'm doing, I repent. I don't think about it or pray about it. If I'm going to pray about it, it's for forgiveness. I just decide every day of my life. I'm going to wake up in the morning and the first thing I'm going to do, the first conscious thought of my life after I make coffee, the first conscious thought of my life is going to be this. What do you want me to do? What do you want me to be? What do you want me to say? How do you want me to behave? Show me what it is that's important today. You know who I'm saying all that stuff to? You might think I'm asking my wife. I am not. She's the second person I'll ask. And sometimes I give her a little deference. But I give God preference. He gets first shot. Now, I don't always succeed in that. I'm going to tell you, that sounded really kind of haughty. I realized when I said that, that sounded really haughty. I do not always succeed in that. But I'm determined to make that true. Do you see what James is telling us? We have conflict in our lives because we try to play God. And the last thing he says here is, we don't do what's right even when we know it's the right thing to do. That's a sin. When I procrastinate and put off what God's will is, that means I've not given His will preference. I'm giving it reference. I may be even giving it deference. Tomorrow I may think differently. But today I'm going to do what I want. When we say that, what we've committed is incredible sin. And what you can do with your life, this is what you can do. You can spend your life, you can waste your life, or you can invest your life. If I refuse to do God's will, I have wasted my life. If I do what it is that I want to do, I have spent my life. But if I choose to do what God wants, I have invested my life. I've chosen to make my life matter. And let me tell you, this business here at at verse 17, this very important verse. He says, the person who knows to do good and does not do it, it's sin. That's a sin. Oh, that's such a powerful word. It's such a strong word. And we think about sins like murder. We think about lying. Those are bad. Those are really bad. Do you know what happens when we know what's right and we don't do it? We murder people. People who could go to heaven... They aren't going to go to heaven because we don't do what we're supposed to do. That's murder. That's why he calls this a sin. When we see what God's will is and we refuse to do it, we do what we want, that's a lie. That's saying that God's will is not better. God's will is not smarter. God's will is not more appropriate. I know what to do. I know what the choices that should be made. And that's a lie. That's not the truth. So what is it you know you need to do? What have you been fighting and, and resisting and pushing against and saying, ah, just that's too hard. I don't want to do that. What is it? 
could be that somebody here has never obeyed the gospel. They're resisting the idea that water baptism is going to save me just because, you know, 1 Peter 3 says it does. I've been taught something else all my life. Well, I, I don't know. I don't know what you've been taught. But I can tell you, we can look at the passages together and you won't be able to draw any other conclusion except this is what God said to do. And if you do it, you'll be saved. So we'd encourage you to do it tonight. If you don't understand it, we'd encourage you to ask. We'll just sit around and talk. I'm not going to ever ask you to believe anything you can't read with your own eyes. But if there's something else, and chances are good, there's something else for everybody here. Most of these people are Christians. There is something that's amiss. You didn't make it all the way through this day doing all 100% right. What is it that God's saying to do right now? You can probably do it right there where you're at. You can plan to do it. You can say you're going to do it. But if we need to help you do it, why don't you let us know what the thing is that you need, and we'll try to help you with that. Come right now as we stand and sing.